Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. There's been quite a lot of concern and hysteria around fever in the return traveler, especially if they're from West Africa because of the recent Ebola scare. It reminds me a little bit of 2003 with SARS in Toronto. We had to contend with this serious airborne illness. I'm here at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto with Dr. Howard Ovens, who's the chief of the emergency department here and a full professor at the University of Toronto. He's the central Toronto Lynn lead for EM as well as the provincial lead, and he has a special interest in health policy. He's going to set us straight with what we need to know about Ebola and the practicalities of how to handle the patient with a fever of unknown origin in the emergency department. Dr. Evans, welcome. Hi, Anton. Thank you very much for the opportunity of talking to you today about Ebola preparedness. I have a, I think, interesting perspective to offer because I was an emergency physician and an emergency director during the SARS outbreak in 2003. And during that time, I saw SARS patients personally, and my department cared for over 20 SARS patients without any transmission of disease. And I think because of that experience, I look on the current Ebola situation a little differently than many of my colleagues or some of the things I've read in the media. So Dr. Evans, can you just tell us a little bit about how Ebola is different than SARS, for example, and what are the facts we need to know about how it's transmitted? I want to remind everybody that Ebola is a body fluid disease. It is not airborne. It is therefore almost analogous to other diseases that we are more familiar with, such as HIV AIDS, something that caused a lot of panic way back in the 80s, and people were afraid to touch AIDS patients, to be in the same room with them, and we now routinely look after them without fear. Okay, I really like that analogy of thinking about the transmission of Ebola similarly to the transmission of HIV. So, Dr. Evans, how do these patients present? In the case of Ebola, the disease starts as a nonspecific flu-like illness in a patient who is likely to be ambulatory and cooperative and therefore presents very little contagious risk. As they become more ill, they may develop delirium, vomiting and diarrhea, and DIC leading to bleeding and oozing from multiple body orifices. All of these body fluids are highly contagious, and so looking after a patient in those circumstances who also needs advanced critical care interventions does present a very big challenge, but that's a slightly different challenge than we would imagine at a triage desk of an ambulatory patient who arrived with early Ebola. Okay, so just to clarify here, it's those patients who come in early in their disease process who will have a flu-like illness. Those are the ones who don't really pose much of a risk in terms of being contagious. It's really only the sick patients who have fever and DIC, who are oozing blood from every orifice, that we really need to worry about containing that Ebola virus. So, Dr. Evans, what are the chances that Ebola will become something like SARS, where the transmission of Ebola into Canada becomes a major epidemic or pandemic or a major problem for our emergency departments? 
the situation in North America is very different than in Africa. And so the chances of chains of transmission of Ebola in North America is very unlikely. People who become ill with Ebola, if they happen to be in North America, will be not contagious in the early stages. As they become ill, they will seek hospital care. And even if they stayed home and died at home, we do not have the same practices around dead bodies and burial as they do in Africa, and we have much better home hygiene than most villages in Africa. Therefore, the likelihood of an ongoing outbreak of Ebola in North America remains highly, highly remote. On the other hand, because of travel, we must be prepared to see potential Ebola patients and rule Ebola in or out. So, Dr. Robbins, could you just describe the plan that you have for handling these patients who may have Ebola that come to your emergency department and what you think other emergency departments should do to handle these patients? Before I describe what I think are the key elements of our plan, I want to comment on whether recent North American experience supports or refutes anything I've said. We all know now that a nurse in Spain became ill after caring for an Ebola patient who had been evacuated from the outbreak zone, and that more recently two nurses in Texas have become ill after caring for an Ebola patient. Many people see this as a sign that we're not prepared and that Ebola is a big danger to us in North America. While I don't want to minimize the tragedy of these occurrences for the individuals and their families, if we think about it, the index case in Texas made a visit to the emergency department in Dallas and was not put into isolation and was returned to his residence where he cohabited with several other people. And during the few days until he was identified and isolated, there were over 100 contacts in the community and in the emergency department who have not become ill, and the 21-day incubation period has passed. This tells me that Mr. Duncan was not contagious to people in the early stages of his illness, as we expect. This is highly reassuring. Unfortunately, at the advanced stages of illness, three nurses have become ill who provided many hours of care on multiple days to end-stage Ebola patients. So, Dr. Evans, when it comes to personal protective equipment, or PPE, how do you suggest that our emergency departments should prepare? There's been a lot of anxiety because specific advice on PPE varies. Don't forget that there has been a lot of ordering of PPE supplies in the last few weeks and months, and supply chain problems are starting to arise just as they did in SARS. There are also differences of opinion between different hospitals and different suppliers because of negotiated contracts. Just because one hospital has slightly different equipment than you do doesn't mean yours is bad and theirs is better. Also, you may have seen that in some areas where ongoing care of Ebola patients is anticipated, very high-level precautions, including PAPR-type suits, have been used. However, this does not mean that they think that Ebola is airborne. It means that it's a very different problem to spend eight hours at the bedside of an Ebola patient who's critically ill, both from a comfort point of view and a safety point of view. In the emergency department, we have to get in and out quickly and frequently, whereas in the ICU, 
one nurse may care for the same patient for an entire shift. Getting out of your PPE is the key thing, and getting out of a PAPR suit is complicated. It doesn't make any sense to get in one for several minutes in order to confront the challenges of getting out of it safely. Whereas if you're only doing it once or twice a shift, you may be willing to accept the complexity of removing a PAPR suit in return for the added comfort. Not added safety, but added comfort. So Dr. Evans, are there any real-life examples where using these precautions has been shown to be safe and stop the transmission of Ebola? The experience in Emory Medical Center in Atlanta is that you can look after Ebola patients safely. In Emory, they've looked after three patients now with no transmission of disease, and they've tested their environment carefully, and they've shown that, as we expected, Ebola virus is in large concentrations in bodily fluids, but does not appear on surfaces. Surfaces in which the fluid has dried will no longer be contagious, and surfaces that are wiped with standard disinfectants rapidly or actually immediately become safe. So that sounds pretty much exactly just like HIV in terms of transmissibility. Also, there's a lot of rumor about events at a, at a time of intense fear and scrutiny like now. During SARS, we often heard about healthcare workers who became ill, and the presumption was that there had been a problem with our protocols and we had to put on another layer. However, we found out later that usually there had been an identified break in protocol that led to healthcare worker illness. We drew the wrong lessons because increasing complexity makes it more difficult to get safely out of your PPE once you're in them. Okay, Dr. Evans, so now can you tell our listeners what the practical steps we should take when the patient hits the door and you might be deemed at risk for Ebola? So I'm going to just walk you through very briefly what I think are the key issues emergency staff have to hold on to during the next several months while this outbreak runs its course. The first one is the importance of identification and screening at triage. Almost immediately on arrival, the first few questions should include asking about travel to the outbreak zone in Africa and a history of fever or or feverish-like symptoms. So the countries that we should be asking about in return travelers are Guinea, Liberia, Nigeria, Senegal, Sierra Leone, and the Congo. Patients who fail the screen, you should stop there if you're a triage nurse, back away a little bit, wash your hands, cover your face with a face shield, ask the patient to cleanse their hands and don a mask and stay put. Alert a colleague to get an isolation room ready as per your plan for this patient, and as soon as the room is ready, move the patient and any visitors who are with them into the isolation room. Let them walk themselves. If they're able to walk on their own and you can keep a distance of several feet, you don't need full PPE for this walk. Get them in the isolation room as quickly as possible. Once they're in the isolation room, back off. You don't need to immediately do blood work, IVs, or other interventions which might be dangerous. Take a few minutes to get all your PPE ready. Look at your plan figure out who the local experts are, and consult with them. 
In my emergency department, we've put a phone in our isolation room so that we can actually call the patient and get a detailed travel history and dates of travel and onset of symptoms so we can better identify whether this patient is an Ebola risk or not. Once Ebola has been ruled out, standard precautions apply. When it comes to PPE, it's not who made your PPE and how many layers you have that's key. The key thing is using a buddy to help you get in and out of it safely and following, if possible, a printed guide to take you through the steps so even if you're tired, anxious, or busy, you'll get it right. Again, always have a buddy watch you put on and take off your PPE. The fewest number of people possible should go into the room until Ebola has been ruled out, and any local experts in infection control and or infectious disease should be mobilized early on. All right, so we can't overestimate the importance of having a buddy. So let's say there's a slip-up and you come into contact with a body fluid of a patient who might have Ebola. What do we do then? If you ever do get contaminated with bodily fluids under any circumstance, just stop, don't move, take a deep breath. You want to avoid contaminating yourself further. Wash your hands, wash any exposed skin, Call a buddy to observe you to make sure you take the following steps correctly. Remove soiled clothing. Wash the skin below it. Get yourself covered in something clean. And then call for expert help. If we follow these simple rules, we have nothing to fear from Ebola. Respect it, prepare for it, and then relax. So thank you very much, Dr. Evans. Remember that if you understand how Ebola is transmitted and you know how to protect yourself and you know the steps to take in the emergency department like Dr. Evans went through, then you'll be okay. Before we go, just a quick announcement. For those of you who are looking to get the RSS feed from emergency medicine cases, let's say you want to look at it through Feedly or one of the other RSS readers, there was a little problem created when we changed over from the old website to the new website in April of 2014. The new feed that'll keep you current on all the EM Cases podcasts, go to the EM Cases website, go into the top right corner and click on the button that has the RSS feed symbol on it, and that'll take you to a page where in the top right-hand corner, it gives you options of how to subscribe to that feed. So you can get it delivered by email or you can sign up with Feedly Reader, for example. And your RSS feeder will be updated every time a new episode is released. Next week's podcast is going to be on Peds POCUS. We're going to talk with Dr. Jason Fisher, who runs the only fellowship in Canada for pediatric bedside ultrasound, as well as Dr. Alex Arroyo, Dr. Alyssa Abo, and Dr. Adam Sivitz. So until next time, take it easy. Mm-hmm.